This time, if you're in first through third grade, you can be dismissed to your children's uh, program class. The rest of us, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number five. As I've had opportunity, I've been privileged to be preaching through the book of Hebrews, and it has taken quite a while, but it's been wonderful for my own heart to study in this book, which is so rich with Christ. Hebrews chapter number 5, this morning we'll be in verses 11 through 14. There's an extended thought in verses 11 all the way through verse 8 or 9 of the following chapter, chapter number 6. We don't have time to complete that entire thought this morning, so we'll give our attention today to verses 11 through 14. Would you follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read the passage aloud, and then we'll go to the Lord and ask for his help as we consider his word this morning. The writer says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Would you join me in prayer as we go before the Lord? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the scriptures this morning. You have promised that you will provide everything that we need for life and godliness, and that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that this is a perfectly suited means to our faithfulness here on this earth. And we pray that you would grant us understanding of this text by your spirit, that you would minister it to each heart according to your omniscience and the needs we have. We love you and we commit this time to you. Allow us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And we'll give you great uh, praise and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me, I have a little tickle in my throat, so if I cough or drink a little bit more than usual, that would be the reason. I want us to notice, though, first of all, this text of Scripture, as we've read it, follows immediately on the heels of a text that we considered several months ago regarding the obedience of Christ, which the Scriptures tell us he learned. Would you look with me just briefly again to gain some context at verses 7 through 10? In the same chapter, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, the writer tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And this morning, we don't have time to go back and re-explain those verses of Scripture, although it's worth continual thought and consideration. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. But what I want us to think of is I want us to spend some time and remember the character of our Lord as it is presented for us here in this book of the Bible and here in this passage of Scripture. Do you remember, as we've studied, how kind and loving Jesus Christ is with us? Do you remember that because of our sinfulness, we stand in need of a true priest and a mediator to go to God on our behalf? And here in this text, we have the very Son of God standing in our place, praying for us by virtue of his priestly office. Jesus, in his prayers in the garden, is not a priest who is beset with weaknesses as we learned the line of Aaron is. No, Christ, our author tells us, is much more like the priest king, Melchizedek, who, as you recall from the book of Genesis, is a greater figure than even Abraham, the father of the people of God. And we see this in Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek, the lesser to the greater. Jesus, a priest much more like Melchizedek than the line of Aaron, is eternal. He offers a perfect once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. Remember the tears of our Lord which he shed on our behalf. Faced with the greatest anguish that any human has ever faced, Jesus, our Lord, took care and grief to God with loud cries and tears. Jesus, in his humanity, learned to obey by faith, the same way that you and I are called to obey. And so our hearts rejoice when we look at verse number 11 in our passage this morning, which we read a moment ago, and we hear the author tell us, about this we have much to say. Other translations read, of whom we have much to say. And the point is that the author wants to continue to draw out the subject of Christ's relationship to Melchizedek and the strength and the comfort and the courage and the hope that it grants to us as God's children to hear of it. And our hearts should immediately cry out with the author, yes, please tell me more. Tell me more in the book of Hebrews of how he is my older brother who comes to rescue me from captivity to sin. Tell me more of how he is the captain of our salvation who has suffered more on the battlefield than any of us and yet leads us on to victory by his leadership. Tell me more of how Moses was merely a servant in God's house compared to the glory of being a son in God's house, which Jesus is. Tell me more of how I may boldly go before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Tell me how Jesus, the Son of God, as my great high priest, has passed through the heavens and the scriptures tell us, ever lives to pray before the Father for me now. And isn't that exactly the message of the hymns of which we sang this morning? Do you remember the old gospel hymn, More About Jesus? More about Jesus, let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus in his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line, and making each faithful saying mine. The hymn we just sang a couple of minutes ago speaks directly to this theme. He ever 
lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. And the heart of the Christian swells in joy in hearing and knowing these truths. The natural response of the Christian should be to the author of Hebrews like a teenage boy to his mom when she asks if he's done eating yet. No, I still want more. What I've had has been delicious and wonderful, but I'm ready for the next serving, for the next course. About this we have much to say. Thank goodness. I'm not through yet. Our hearts would echo with Paul at this point, and we would say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Isn't it a cause for rejoicing that within the scriptures we have treasures far beyond our ability to search out in our lifetime? You will never come to the end of the glory to be revealed to you by God through the pages of his word and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? With this depth of love and longing for Christ. Now friends, if what I'm saying to you and my description of this seems hopelessly dramatic and absurd and you really have no concept of that kind of a desperate desire to know Christ and be found in him, then you ought to consider whether or not you have a genuine saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. You understand that being a Christian is more than attending church and calling yourself a Christian. One who has Christ as his Savior is one whose heart has been changed. Someone who no longer gives loyalty and attention to sinfulness, even though they continue to struggle with it. It is one whose heart has been changed so that at core, the deepest longing of their heart and soul is that they would lay hold of Christ, as Pastor Joe loves to say. Friends, if you in your heart don't know anything of that desperate longing for Christ, would you come and talk to myself or one of the other pastors or Maybe if you're a visitor, if you've not been with us before, you would talk to somebody who's near you and ask them what the Bible says about a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Friends, for the believer, Christ is the great treasure of the soul. He's the joy of living. He's the end. He's the great goal in our lives to have more of Jesus. That is the mark of a true Christian. We long to know more of Christ, but then we read on in verse number 11 and all of the joy and elation that we experience as we hear the writer promise to tell us more begins to come crashing down. Look at verse number 11 and how he says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain. What does he mean it is hard to explain? Is he potentially saying that the doctrines that point to Jesus in this passage, in his incarnate ministry as our high priest, are these things too difficult for us? As if 
he wants to tell us more, but it's, it's just beyond grasping. It's just, you know, we've reached the edge of the cliff, and sure, there may be more truth, but it's unattainable by humans. Well, no, that's, that's not the reason. What he's told us so far is for us and for our children. The Bible tells us in both the Old and the New Testaments that what's revealed of Christ is not high up in heaven or deep in the earth, that we need to like, send someone to go and get it and fetch it to us because it's just too far away for us to access. These truths are not simple. They are complex, but they're not beyond us. They're recorded in God's word for our benefit, for our learning. The writer himself tells us that there's more to say, and actually, if you look ahead in chapter number seven, he goes on in a great deal more detail about Melchizedek and his ministry. Well, maybe he tells us it's hard to explain because really that's just like advanced theology, and there's only certain Christians that really even need to study those things. Perhaps perhaps those teachings of Christ and his priesthood and his incarnation, his obedience, the things we've been hearing about, perhaps we can't go much further and it's hard to explain because it's really just for pastors or, or maybe deacons, but not really anything that I need to be concerned about. Well, no, that can't be it either, because there's not some truth in the Bible for one class of Christians and other truths in the Bible for another. As many Christians have noted throughout the years, and I think it holds true, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Further, pastors are commanded to preach and proclaim the whole counsel of God, which means that anything that God reveals and shows in his word is for the whole church. There's nothing here that's only for a certain class of Christians and not for others. Friends, whatever these truths are about Christ, it's not that they are too advanced, nor is it that these doctrines are too difficult to grasp. Well, perhaps the author of Hebrews is saying that there are many more doctrinal truths regarding Jesus our Savior, but the Christians reading this letter, they're just brand new Christians, and so they just quite aren't ready for that level yet. Maybe it's just too much to throw on them all at once. Now, that is uh, a legitimate point to be made. Not all truth is suitable for, you know, the 10 seconds after you become a Christian. You know, there's a, a foundation that must be laid in the scriptures. And so that, that has some merit to it, but that's not what's going on here. This is not a brand new congregation. There are many indicators in the text that this is not a group of biblically illiterate people. They know the scriptures. It's not that they just aren't ready for the next level. Well, then what is the reason that these glorious truths have been put on pause here in this passage? Well, he tells us that the reason it is hard to explain is because, as you'll see in verse number 11, you've become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing that expression in the original language just means to be lazy or sluggish. This is the student who's fallen asleep on his or her desk, which, given a few weeks, we'll be able to give some more specific accounts of. This is the person who may be awake in class, but they've been counting ceiling tiles for the past 20 minutes, and they're not quite aware of where in the material the teacher is. The dull of hearing person is the person who shows up for basketball practice before the tournament and they're wearing cargo shorts. It's the person who shows up for soccer practice three weeks into conditioning and didn't bring cleats with them. 
It's the person who knows what is expected. There's no excuse at this point for a lack of information or a lack of understanding. Rather, it's a kind of lazy failure to think, a lazy failure to engage with the material at hand, with what's going on, with what is required and expected of them, and then to act in a way in accordance with that. The dull of hearing person is the one who has been warned and officially reprimanded at work for consistently being late and yet continues to kind of skate in a few minutes after the shift has began. And brothers and sisters, being dull of hearing is a problem in every generation. Our flesh would long for nothing more than to halt or slow or even cause our spiritual progress to regress. And for that reason... We must take the word of God very seriously this morning when the author of this book tells that his readers have become dull of hearing. So this morning, our goal is to take a look at this passage, verses 11 through 14, and determine how the author describes the immature Christian, the dull of hearing Christian. What are the traits that are true of such a person in this passage of Scripture? And then allow the Spirit of God with your own hearts engaging with the searching to determine whether or not any of these qualities are, in fact, true of you in your life. Friends, the the point of this passage this morning, before we go any further, is that the maturing Christian, the one who is making progress, constantly pursues a growth in spiritual knowledge and obedience. The maturing Christian constantly pursues a growth in spiritual knowledge and obedience. I want to bring out several key attributes or qualities of the immature Christian, the dull of hearing Christian. And the first that I want us to see is in verse number 12, and it's the quality that the immature Christian cannot and does not teach. The immature Christian, the one who is failing to mature, cannot and does not teach. Look with me at verse number 12. See how it reads, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, at first blush, we might question within ourselves, why is this a problem? Why is it that the author here is expecting his readers to be able to teach? Is he saying that You know, anyone and everyone maybe ought to be pastors in preaching, and maybe the mature congregation is one that rotates through everybody in the congregation to stand in the pulpit and proclaim God's word. That's not what he's saying. He's not advocating that everyone holds a teaching office in the church, and nor is he teaching that everyone even possesses a teaching gift. The Bible teaches very specifically and clearly that every believer possesses a gift for spiritual ministry given to him by the Holy Spirit himself. And that gift is to be put to work for the edification of the body. I believe that those gifts fall into two major categories, gifts of teaching and gifts of serving. And some people have gifts of serving and some people have gifts of teaching. Neither is more important than the other. They're both necessary for the effective functioning of the ministry of the church. And so we ask ourselves, why does he care? What is his problem? Why is it a big deal that he thinks these people ought to be teachers when the Bible elsewhere clearly teaches us that not everyone is expected to be a teacher in the church? Well, I think we need to remember at this point that the spiritual gifts 
correlate to the duties of Christians. For instance, some people are given the gift of generosity in giving. And yet, the Bible also teaches us that we are all commanded to be givers and to give generously. Some people are gifted in their service through hospitality. Some people do this so well and so effectively to gain great ministry in the church, and yet it is not everyone's gift, but it does not diminish the responsibility of every believer to be a hospitable Christian. Very similarly, here in our passage, when he says you ought to be teachers, what he's referencing is the duty that's laid on every person for the form of teaching to which God has called you as a matter of obedience and duty. Deuteronomy 11.19, for example, says, You, the congregation of all of Israel, shall teach them these things, the law, to your children. Let me say it again. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in the house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. The New Testament reaffirms this. In Ephesians 6, 4, when it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we see very clearly that the Bible commands parents to be teachers of God's truth in the home. And this is more than and far exceeding merely bringing your children to church. Rather, the responsibility is laid on every parent in this room to train your children in the things of God on purpose. Have you taught your children how to pray fervently and effectively? Have you taught them how to study the Bible on their own for spiritual growth? Have you taught them the law of God? Have you shown your children from the scriptures the obedience of Jesus And all that his death on the cross accomplished in their place. Have you taught your children what the church is and what its nature and function and purpose is? Have you taught your children why baptism is so vital to the Christian life? Or have you taught them how God uses preaching as a means of sanctification? Outside of the home, there are further teaching responsibilities that we all share together. Ephesians 4 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. For what purpose in the church did Christ give these offices? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, how would we define the work of the ministry which pastors are to equip congregation members to perform? Well, it tells us in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Your responsibility with the truth that is given to you both in teaching forms and in your own personal study of the Word is that you would take those truths and use them effectively in the lives of others to help this congregation reach a mature level of understanding of the knowledge of the Son of God. It goes on and says, we're no longer children if this is the case. If everyone is teaching everyone with the truth of God's word because they're equipped by the pastoral office, then we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine 
by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We'll have a congregation that is able to evade and detect false teaching and unhelpful exhortations. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow, that's collectively all of us, up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Friends, it is your responsibility as a Christian and member of this church to be learning scriptural truth and lovingly pressing it to the lives of people around you. In this sense, all of you are called to be teachers. But is that true of your life? Looking around this room right now, who among your fellow church members bears the marks of greater godliness because of your words of truth spoken lovingly into their lives? Have you ever thought to yourself that beyond merely being a receptor of sermons, who you might befriend among this group of people in order that you might build a relationship based on shared truth from God's word, that you might sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron? Have you ever read through a book of the Bible or a book of Christian doctrine or Christian living with another believer? Friends, why not? Why so long have you been members without ever taking the wealth of knowledge and insight into God's word which he has graciously given you and turned it to ministry with other people? Remember our Lord's great commission make disciples of every creature. We see now that the teaching ministry which all believers share in the duty of extends beyond merely the nucleus of the family and it extends merely beyond the relationships we share within this church. It actually does, in fact, extend beyond these walls into the community. Friends, is your desire and aim to direct and steer conversations towards Scripture, ultimate questions, the Lord Jesus Christ with your co-workers, with your neighbors? Do you pray on a regular basis, Lord, give me opportunities to speak of the gospel with someone who has not yet turned in faith to the Lord Jesus? Lord, would you give me an opportunity to be involved in the work that you are doing throughout the world by your sovereignty? Would you give me an opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ regardless of the cost? You might say at this point, okay, okay. You're expecting far too much of every church member. Sure, some people will attain some skill at those things, but that's not what the expectation surely is for all of us. It's not that I shouldn't be doing those things even, but I'm just not ready for that yet. I hope to get there someday, and boy, I'm with you. I, I want to be that kind of person at some point. At what point will you be ready? How many books do you think you'll need to read How many Bible studies do you think you'll need to attend before you're ready to start reaching into the lives of the people around you, even that of your own family, in order to disciple them intentionally in the truths of Scripture? How long have you already been under the teaching and training of this ministry with little to no eternal fruit produced in the lives of others? Five years? Ten? Decades? My brothers and sisters, can I gently suggest 
it is possible that there are people here who have become dull of hearing. Because by this time you ought to be teachers. It doesn't have to be complicated. Here's the most basic step. If you have a desire to advance in your Christian maturity, and you want to turn scriptural truth to ministry in the lives of others, here's the most basic first step you can take. You pick up the Bible, and you read it, and you study it every day. You listen carefully when God's word is being taught, and you find one person to share what God has been teaching you. Friends, start with your spouse. Start with your children. Start with the people who regularly sit next to you in your Sunday school class or maybe regularly on your pew. And even as you nudge them out of your assigned seat, you know, you would say, uh, I'll sit there. But let me talk to you. How has God been ministering to your heart through the word? After the sermon is over, before you begin to speak of sports and weather, What did God tell you in that message? How did God work on your heart through the word? This is how God has been working in my heart. I'm so encouraged to know so many of you who are already doing these things. It's such a blessing to know how God is giving people a hunger to take what God has shown them and make it count in the lives of other people. Friends, can you imagine if we had a congregation full people who took regular, unscheduled opportunities to sharpen each other with God's word, to pray with each other. Friends, that's a fellowship that is even sweeter than sharing a meal together on a fifth Sunday. Now, friends, not only is a characteristic found in this passage of an immature, dull of hearing Christian that they cannot and do not teach, but This sort of person is in constant uh, need of teaching in basic truths. They're in constant need of teaching in basic truths. That's the second quality. The author goes on and describes the immature Christian as one who is in need of constant reminding in basic things. In contrast to people who should have been teachers, the readers of this particular epistle are acting as if their current level of spiritual and scriptural knowledge is perfectly satisfactory. I studied Christianity for 10 years, and I no longer need anything anybody can teach me. Where I am is perfectly fine. I've got enough scriptural knowledge I don't need to pursue anymore. The author is probably even here using some rhetorical flourish, a little irony in his point. There have been times, as I have the opportunity and the privilege of teaching, you know, a couple of classes in our Christian school, um, A couple of times in my very short uh, teaching career, when I've said something very similar to this passage to a group of students, Uh, the one that gets me most often is when students write incomplete sentences. Now, here's the deal. Every teacher has their own little academic pet peeves, if you will. In my Bible class, it usually involves a good amount of essay writing and papers and responses and so on and so forth, because I want to know that the concept of Scripture, which I'm trying to teach them, and of worldview in these things, that they're really, you know, appropriating those things, they're really comprehending those things, and so there's a good deal of writing. And um, it is a great, a great sorrow to my heart 
when I see an incomplete sentence. There's a policy that I have that every incomplete sentence automatically deducts points. And if there is a short answer section where their short answer is a sentence fragment, I don't give any points for that answer. Like, oh, you're so harsh. But I'm just through with it, okay? No more. There have even been times when I have come to the juniors and seniors in my class and threatened with maybe some bitterness to bring in my wife, who has taught third grade for the past many years, into my class of juniors and seniors to remind the high schoolers, underline, bold, exclamation point, how to write a sentence. In my opinion, and I believe I share this opinion with every self-respecting educator, writing incomplete sentences as a senior in high school is unacceptable. It's a long way from a mistake. It's lazy. Writing a complete thought with words according to the rules of grammar is literally an elementary skill. So when I have to spend time teaching high schoolers how to write a sentence, instead of teaching them about the attributes of God or about how postmodernism is a bankrupt worldview in comparison with the answers Scripture gives us, I get discouraged and I get a little bit uh, passionately, I hope righteously, heated about it. This is what the author is doing here. Look again at verse number 12. For though by this time you ought to have been teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Can't you almost hear him saying, you don't really need me to go back and lay these principles again, do you? Because you're acting as if I need to go back and lay these principles again. See how the author goes on. He describes the readers drinking milk, not solid food. Look with me at verse number 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Friends, what we need to be careful of is in this phrase, don't make the mistake of thinking that there's anything wrong with spiritual milk. There's nothing wrong with being fed spiritual milk in this passage. In fact, there are people who need that and ought to take in a deep diet of it. What the author here calls spiritual milk is not something that we as Christians ever leave behind, but rather it's something that we build upon. The problem is not with the milk, but with the fact that maturity never advances past it. Matthew Henry, one of the last great Puritan writers, wrote in his commentary on this passage, said, There are in the church babes and persons full of age. And there are in the gospel milk and strong meat. Christ despises not his babes. He has provided suitable food for them. It is good to be babes in Christ, but not always to continue in that childish state. He goes on, we should endeavor to pass the infant state. It is a sin and shame for persons that are men for their age and standing in the church to be children and babes in understanding. Notice also how in this verse the comparison is made between milk and solid food and the word of righteousness. That is what requires a growing maturity. This, I believe, 
the word of righteousness refers to the revelation of truth from God to which our author's been referring. In its immediate context, it refers to this teaching of Christ and Melchizedek, but in its larger context throughout the book of Hebrews, he's quoting voraciously from the whole Old Testament. His intent is that his readers would be people who are skilled at taking the scriptures and understanding Christ in the scriptures and making quick and obedient application to their lives. And this, as we've seen, is a constant pursuit in growth. When your attitude, friends, towards Christianity is that you already know the Bible and that therefore you no longer need to read it or to meditate on it, or when your attitude that merely being present for a sermon is a perfectly justifiable substitute for actually pursuing a deeper knowledge of Scripture, you're acting like a baby, a spiritual infant. Infancy is perfectly acceptable for infants. I doubt there's a person in this room who did not have their parents remind them at some point to act their age. In elementary school, the great insult is act your age, not your shoe size. And brothers and sisters, your pursuit of God through the continual study of truth revealed in his word is the mark of a maturing, growing Christian. The mark of a mature Christian is not how long you've been a Christian, nor is it how many sermons you've heard. Friends, it is possible for people to be Christians and God's children for decades and never exceed spiritual infancy. There is more to the scriptures which you must learn and master in your understanding. If not, Friends, it is an indicator that you are a dull of hearing Christian, a Christian who has failed to continue in maturity in your spiritual life. There's one final attribute that we need to consider. The spiritually immature person, the dull of hearing Christian, does not consistently train their discernment in good and evil. Look with me at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature... For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In this verse, we have the reminder that a growing knowledge of Scripture ought to then result in a practice of holiness. The author calls it the exercise of discernment to know good and evil. But he doesn't mean merely recognizing the difference between good and bad based on your understanding of Scripture. He certainly means that that discernment would be followed by practice. And here's an excellent point for us to consider because in our Christian journey, there is often a wrong tendency to separate theology, doctrine, and the study of Scripture from what is practical. Sometimes the doctrinal aspect of Christianity is more viewed as an optional perk. Like there's a certain base level I need in order to be saved, and then everything after that, it's like, you know, it's not necessary, but go for it. Sure, if that's what floats your boat, yeah, that's a nice way to spend your Christian life. Go for it. You know, but it's not necessary, perhaps. I can learn a certain amount to be saved, and then, you know, I just need to do my best and, you know, try to be faithful and be a faithful Christian and these things. But friends, this is a a poor understanding of how truth and practice work together. As we've already seen, part of faithfulness and doing what is right in maturity is to grow in your understanding of Scripture. So we've already seen that the pursuit of understanding of all of God's revelation is itself practical. 
I want you to imagine that you're having a conversation, maybe with your spouse or special someone, and you know, they're kind of spending a couple minutes to tell you about their day, what they did that day. Then imagine that you look at this person sitting across from you and you say, yes, that's interesting, but you know, I, just, I don't really care to know things about you unless it's practical for my relationship with you. Are you telling me that there's something I need to go do now? No. Um, there are many ways the conversation could go at that point, but they're, they're not very pleasant to think about. In that case, a response like that is so absurd because it has missed the point of the relationship at all. Isn't the point of the relationship the mutual delight in conversation that we have with each other? Isn't the point of having a friend that you would delight in that person rather than what that person expects for you to do in order to maintain a particular friendship? You could never look at your spouse and say, man, I don't really care to know about that particular color unless you're trying to hint to me what I should get you for Christmas. Friends, how often do we treat our relationship with God this way? As if the only thing that matters is what we can turn to a clear command to do something. I only value what God tells me so long as it's a command and it's something that's very easy to do. I don't really care to work to understand anything about God. And yet, on the other hand, it is far too easy to study Scripture extensively, to make theology a hobby, and yet fail to apply that truth for your life. Our passage is absolutely clear that these things cannot be divided. You cannot have one without the other. Friends, brothers and sisters, being able to detect subtle heresies is wonderful, but it is a hollow victory if you have a critical spirit and you lack gentleness. It's possible to meditate on Scripture daily and have a great understanding of the chapter content of the Old Testament and yet daily lose your temper with your family and be driven by your sinful desires. And this would be perfect proof to you that you have failed to take the truth of Scripture and allow it to produce wisdom. What could be more insulting to our Creator that His revelation has so little effect in our lives? Friends, wouldn't it be like receiving a Christmas list from someone and then promptly tearing it up and buying what you want instead? How can we who are God's children do any less than be imitators of God as dear children? Friends, doesn't it require theology to understand our adoption as sons, and yet that is never left alone. It always results in a faith that believes it and a heart that obeys it. How can we know the doctrines of justification by faith alone, by grace alone? How can we know the imputation of Christ's passive and active obedience and do anything less than, as Paul says, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So, church family, let's remember that unless we take our growth in the word of righteousness from verse 13 and apply it to wise living in discerning good and evil in verse 14, our Christianity will be necessarily immature. Now, before we conclude, I want to briefly consider what the picture is of a mature Christian. I think you could figure it out pretty easily, but let's get it out there. 
I want to ask two questions quickly. What does a maturing Christian look like? And do aspects of my life reflect spiritual immaturity as presented in this passage? Now, remember, this is important. A maturing Christian reflects a steady state of spiritual growth, not a person who's arrived. To be a mature Christian is to be a maturing Christian, somebody who is taking these principles and constantly seeking to gain skill in the word of righteousness so that it can be applied to a discerning of good and evil. Think of what the Apostle Paul said. He said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Friends, if the Apostle Paul never considered that he had arrived either in his understanding or in his obedience, then kindly neither should you. Here are two attributes that are true of the maturing Christian. The first is that the maturing Christian is a lifelong learner in Christ's school. The maturing Christian is a lifelong learner in Christ's school. Isn't it true, friends, that if a dull of hearing Christian has stagnated in growing in their understanding, that a mature Christian is pressing on to greater skill in the word? Friends, if there are aspects in your life this morning that the Holy Spirit reveals to you reflect spiritual immaturity, don't get discouraged and quit. Don't give up. Because Christ is a great teacher. He invites all to come and learn of him because he is meek and lowly in heart. Friends, the learning that's involved in being a disciple of Christ is not easy. It requires great sacrifice. But the reward is beyond all counting. There is nothing you could give up in your pursuit of the knowledge of Christ and of obedience to his word that will not be richly repaid both in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Treasure Christ above all. And on the basis of that love for Jesus, pursue a deeper knowledge of him in the scriptures. Begin a daily Bible reading plan. Use a study Bible and read the notes for each passage. Work through one of the reading tracks we have on our resource center with a friend. Regularly pray with your spouse or another close friend that God would grant you greater understanding of his word. A mature Christian also looks at the world through the lens of scripture. Friends, this requires that we bring God's word to bear in every aspect of our lives. In order to do that effectively... There's much, but I want to offer two suggestions. First, we must be in a state of constant humility and repentance before God and submission to his word in all things. We cannot hope to have our powers of discernment in life reach maturity while we hold on to selfish, sinful attitudes. We desperately need to humble ourselves before God confess our sins, and on a daily basis beg that God would allow us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Friends, has your assumption been that you could open up Scripture and casually expect to take away exactly what you need apart from 
a true desperation for the Spirit of God to work through the Word. Friends, it is imperative that as believers, we never presume upon the gifts and graces of God, but rather with humility we claim His promises by faith and beg for Him to reveal to us and be faithful to His words so that He receives glory in our lives through our transformation into His Son's image. Further, in order to rightly discern and obey God's will, we must seek a heart of trust in everything that God says. If God says it, friends, we must believe it. In fact, we could accurately say that any time there is sin present in our lives, we can explain and account for that sin through a lack of faith in God's word. The sin struggles that you struggle with are symptomatic of a fundamental lack of belief in God's word. A person who truly trusts that God is sovereign and good rejects anxiety. A person who trusts with all their heart that God provides the greatest satisfaction does not seek it in sexual encounters or in lusts or cheap thrills of life. Your daily task as a maturing Christian is very simple. Read the Bible, understand the Bible, and believe what the Bible says such that as you trust it and meditate on it, transforms your habits, your thoughts, your affections and loves, and your behavior. Friends, in conclusion, before our author goes on in his teachings about Christ, he takes these few verses to pause, to warn us, and to reprimand us for spiritual laziness, that results in spiritual immaturity. Are there evidences in your life that you've become dull of hearing in some sense or another? Friends, does your love for Christ outweigh your desire for Christianity to be a passive occurrence? Has the call to follow Christ left you far in the dust behind him? Has the weight of the cross that he's called you to bear become a discouraging load that has prevented you from receiving the strength you need and gaining a skill in his word, ministering it in the lives of others and obeying it consistently. Friends, I trust that as God's children, as God leads and God reveals, you'll respond to God's word with joy and with submission. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for this time to spend in your word. We love you, O God, and we trust you that all of your word is for our good and for our joy. (coughs) Would you give great grace as we consider what you've told us? And I pray that this congregation would be characterized by maturing Christians. We pray this in the name of our Savior.